Many of us remember Vacation Bible School. We sang silly songs with elaborate hand motions. We memorized Bible verses. We drank little cups of juice and ate animal crackers. And depending on our age, we learned the stories of our faith through the cutting edge media of the day, from flannel graphs to puppet shows to well-produced videos of singing vegetables. But I think for a lot of people, this is about as far as we have gone in our exploration of these stories, particularly those in the Old Testament. And that's a problem. Over the next couple of months, we will be rereading some of the most celebrated biblical stories of our youth. But this time, we will be setting them in their proper historical context, which means that even though we may have heard the stories of Noah and Abraham and David and Jonah, we may have missed the point. I mean, they aren't really kid stories. So brace yourselves and break out the animal crackers. This is adult VBS. So this is Adult VBS week five. Tonight, we're gonna be talking about a very familiar story, as we've done in the first four weeks as well. Tonight, we're gonna be talking about Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. And I oftentimes go back to this story as a kid when I would be in in kids' church. We had this sweet old lady named Miss Pat, and Miss Pat had a lot of props. I've told you about the donkey that's covered in carpet, and every Palm Sunday, she'd roll it out. It's on wheels, and and if you're the lucky one, you'd get to ride on the colt, and they'd push you around and people would like throw palm branches and whatever, and that was great. There was also another prop that she would use. It was four pieces of cardboard that were about this tall, and they were held up by by some ropes, and a bunch of kids would get inside of the cardboard little arena and holding the cardboard up with their ropes on the inside, and the rest of us would walk around saying, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, 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 Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. And what do you think the kids on the inside would do with their ropes? They'd let it go, the walls would fall over, genocide! Everybody's dead. Keep singing, kids. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho. Miss Pat wouldn't lead us there, but that's what happens. And when you are 13 or 14 and you're reading your Bible, because you know you're at home and you're bored and you're reading through that story, you're like, wait a second. This isn't a cute kid story. Everybody's dead because God told them to march around the city and then everyone would die. And you have this crisis of faith and you're trying to make sense of all this stuff. Maybe that's traumatic, but for some of you, I'm sure that you've been there, right? Now let's take a step back here. As we think about this story, this is, this is Israel going into the land of promise that was promised to them way back with Abraham where God said, I'm going to make your name great, I'm gonna give you a great seat, I'm gonna lead you into this land where I'm going to reveal myself to you. And from that point in Genesis on through the rest of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, this is the storyline. Israel attempting to get into the land that God has promised them, a land that's flowing with milk and honey, a good and prosperous land where people can go and be settled because God has given them this land. Moses is unable uh, to lead the people into the promised land. We know that Moses is that great intercessor and redeemer figure that takes Israel out of bondage and slavery in Egypt and leads them into freedom. But during their wilderness wanderings, as they are attempting to go to this land of promise, both Moses and the people demonstrate themselves to be sinful and are committed to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Moses himself is unable to lead the people in the promised land, and that job is given to Joshua. One piece of background here, and this is a terrible map, I apologize. There's a lot going on for you like sensory overload type uh, people. You see a lot of different colors and a lot of different points and a lot of different uh, plots on this map here. But basically, the only thing I want you to see here is we have the Jordan River, which is basically a dividing line uh, from this eastern side leading into Israel here, this land of promise. This is a zoomed in portion because I want you to see that just over the river here, more or less, stands Jericho. When Joshua leads the people into this place, this is a, a paradigmatic battle scene. This is the first of a handful of cities that will be overthrown, and this is like their their entrance into the promised land. Also, side note, if you want to 
uh, read the early chapters of the book of Joshua leading up to chapter six. There's also this miraculous uh, Jordan River crossing, which kind of goes back to the Red Sea crossing. There's lots of connections between Moses as the leader of God's people and Joshua as the leader of God's people. And this is leading us into their exploits in the promised land and how they're going to about, uh, going to go about attaining this land, okay? So the people here are poised on this side and they're getting ready to cross over and they're getting ready to go into Jericho as the first uh, of many battles in the uh, attainment of this land. This is the backstory as we go into reading Joshua and the Battle of Jericho according to Joshua chapter six, okay? Now, unlike last week, we're basically just gonna power through this reading which does seem a little bit stodgy at some points. Again, I'm using Robert Alter's translation mainly because I haven't got too much of a chance to read it before, so this is the one that I'm wanting to hang out with for a bit, not because it's that much better, but he does at least allow you to see what the Hebrew is doing. It's kind of wooden and kind of stodgy, but at the same, uh, at the same time, it's allowing you to see some of the things in the text. Okay, so it says this. And Jericho was shut tight before the Israelites. No one came out and no one went in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given into your hand Jericho and its king and the mighty warriors. And you shall go round the town, all the men of war, encircling the town once. Thus you shall do for six days. And seven priests shall bear seven ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day, you shall go round the town seven times, and the priests shall blow the ram's horns. And so, when the horn of the ram sounds a long blast, when you hear the sound of the ram's horn, all the people shall let out a great shout, and the walls of the town shall fall where it stands, and the people shall go up, every man straight before him. And Joshua, son of Nun, called to the priests and said to them, Bear the Ark of the Covenant, and seven priests shall bear seven ram's horns before the Ark of the Covenant. And he said to the people, Cross over and go round the town, and the vanguard will cross over before the Ark of the Lord. And it happened, as Joshua spoke to the people, that the seven priests bearing the seven ram's horns before the Lord crossed over and blew on the ram's horns with the Ark of the Lord's Covenant going after them. And the vanguard was going before the priests who were blowing the ram's horns, and the rear guard was going behind the ark as they went and blew the ram's horns. Now, I don't know if at this point you have no idea what's going on. There's a vanguard, there's a rear guard, there's ram's horns, there's priests, there's an ark of the covenant. There's all sorts of things that are happening here. So I think we should pause, collect our collect ourselves and see what this line of procession would have looked like. Out front, you have the vanguard. These are the military people that are leading the way. Behind them, you have seven priests who are blowing on the seven ram's horns. These are not like instruments with notes. They're just making noise, okay? It's not like they're, they're not crafting a, a great melody together. They're just making noise. Behind them, you have the Ark of the Covenant. Perhaps you have seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Perhaps you know something about the Ark of the Covenant. What you need to know is that the Ark of the Covenant represents God's very presence with his people. When you take the Ark into battle, this was a bad sign for the people on the other side because Israel's God, Yahweh, was showing up on the scene represented by this Ark of the Covenant. There's all kinds of Old Testament stories where Israel loses the Ark and other people get it and there's, there's like a power play that goes on here. And behind that, you have the rear guard. So you have military people out in front and in between you have the priests and you have the Ark of the Covenant that's marching in a procession around Jericho. Okay, we all square? Good to go? All right. And Joshua had charged the people saying, you shall not shout and you shall not let your voice be heard and no word shall come out of your mouths until the moment I say, shout, and then you shall shout. And the ark of the Lord went round the town encircling it once. And they came to the camp and spent the night in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests bore the ark of the Lord and seven priests bearing seven ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went along blowing the ram's horns with the vanguard before them and the rear guard going behind the ark of the Lord. Along they went blowing the ram's horns around the city and they went around the town once on the second day and they returned to camp. So they did six days. Got it? 
So you've got all these people, they're processing around Jericho one time each day. Joshua says, keep your mouths shut. <laughs> Ark of the Covenant going around the, around the town. Just think about being inside the walls of the city here for a second. This is strange, right? You're looking out, you're peeking around saying, what are these crazy people doing? got no idea. Now, you know how the story ends, but kind of leave that out of your mind for a second as we get back into it. And it happened on the seventh day that they rose early as dawn broke and went round the town in this fashion seven times. Only on that day did they go round the city seven times. And it happened when the priests blew the ram's horns for the seventh time that Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given the town to you. And the town and all that is within it shall be under the ban of the Lord, except for Rahab the whore. I forgot that this was in here. Okay, this is, this is Bob, and Bob's getting a little PG-13 here. The word in Hebrew is uh, zonah, I believe, which basically means prostitute. And for some reason, Bob really just wants to push this one. Okay, we're going we're gonna to revisit this word a couple of times here. But Joshua is shouting, and I think this is hilarious, because he doesn't just say, shout. He says, shout. For the Lord has given the town to you, and the town and all that is within it shall be under the ban to the Lord, except that Rahab the whore shall live and whoever is with her in the house, for she hid the messengers whom we sent. Only you, you must keep from the ban, lest you covet and take one of the ban and put the camp of Israel under the ban and stir up trouble for it. And all the silver and the gold and the vessel, the people are just like, come on, dude, I just want to shout. I don't know what's going to happen, but stop talking. The silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and iron shall be holy to the Lord. They shall enter into the Lord's treasury. And the people shouted and blew their ram's horns. And it happened when the people had heard the sound of the ram's horns, the people let out a great shout and the wall fell where it stood and the people went up into the town, every man straight before him and they took the town. And they put under the ban everything that was in the town. This is a Hebrew term here that denotes, it's called harem warfare. This is like holy war, where you're, as the warrior, you are sanctified and you are doing the work of God and God is in your very presence. They're putting the people under the ban, uh, in a sense, dedicating whatever it is that they're taking to the Lord himself. And here we see that at some points, this means that they are going to execute people and at other points, it means they're gonna take all of the riches and put it into the treasury of the Lord. Put it under the ban, everything that was in the town, from man to woman, from lad to elder, and to ox and sheep and donkey by the edge of the sword. And the two men who had spied out the land that Joshua had said, go into the house of Rahab and bring the woman out from there and all that is hers as you vowed to her. This is a story in the, in the, in the recent past where Joshua has sent out two spies and they find refuge in the house of a prostitute. Some people have said that this might have put them undercover because other men would be going and, and, and leaving from this place, but they're going and they're finding refuge there and she's hiding them from the powers that be when the, uh, the rulers of Jericho find out that she might have someone. They, she says that I, I do not. So they've promised to her and, and she is going to find uh, salvation in this in this text. And the young spies came and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all that was hers, because the deal is whoever is in your house, we will protect you. And all her clan they brought out and they put them outside the camp of Israel. And the town they burned in fire and everything in it, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they placed in the treasury of the Lord's house. And Rahab and her father's house and all that was hers, Joshua kept alive. And she has dwelled in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers that Joshua had sent to spy out Jericho. And Joshua imposed a vow at the time saying, cursed be the man before the Lord who will arise and rebuild this town Jericho. This is the, the, the saying, with his firstborn shall he found it and with his youngest set up its portals. This actually comes to fruition in 1 Kings when someone rebuilds Jericho and his firstborn is lost. People wonder as to whether or not this was part of like a, a sacrifice for the well-being of the city or if this is just something that, that goes awry in, in the life of this father that his son would perish. But it says, with his firstborn shall he found it and his youngest set up its portals. And the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was throughout the land, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks.
I don't know if you were able to cut through all of that stuff, the these and the thous and the vanguards and the rear guards and the, the horns and all of those things to get to this very elementary conclusion. This is a problem because God is leading his people and basically commanding them from on high to go into Canaan and to remove all of the inhabitants of the land. For many people, this is something where you throw flags by saying, this doesn't seem to fit the conception of the God that, that I know or the God that I want to know, that God would be this bloodthirsty and this violent in the Old Testament text. How do we make sense of that? And one noted atheist has really brought this home. In his book, The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Did you catch it? Vicky caught it. He's making some bold claims here, but perhaps these are claims that might find some resonance with the things that we've been talking about over the last month or so, that some of these stories their point might not be to bring about the historical accuracy of, of these accounts, but rather to paint a theological picture. But either way, Dawkins is saying that this character, whether he's real or whether he's not real, he's not worth following. He's not someone that you would want to devote your life to because he is jealous and proud of it. He's a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Take that to the recess yard, people. That is not how you would win friends here. This, this required a lot of dictionary work, trying to figure out what he's talking about here. But he does not believe that God, the God of the Old Testament is, is worth much because of stories like this. And if we had to highlight one, we might highlight here a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser because what God is asking his people to do is when they go into Canaan to remove all of the people who are in the land who are not part of Israel because I have given the land to you. And for many people, this is a problem. And it is evoked in this, the, the violence of the conquest when these ancient people go in and systematically remove the inhabitants of the land. Just going back to Deuteronomy chapter 20, this is laid out in what this conquest should look like. Moses is writing this, this legislation, or at least in the text, it, it appears as though Moses is passing down this legislation to the people. It says, when you go out to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots, and you see an army larger than your own, don't be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you. This is the God who brought you up out of Egypt. There's an underlying truth here. God is fighting your battles. Before you engage in battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the troops and you shall uh, say to them, hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near to do battle against your enemies. Do not lose heart or be afraid or panic or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you victory. Underlying this, both in Moses as he's revealing this to the people and through Joshua and the battles. This is a divine war that's taking place and God is overseeing all of it, dictating what should be and empowering the people to go and do. Note, when they're walking around the city, what sort of military strategy is this? What are they doing? They're shouting and playing horns. And on the seventh time around, they shout and play their horns and the walls fall over. Now, scholars have done some pretty cool things with this. Um, we'll get into that in a little bit. But this, this is God doing the work for the people. This text continues. When you draw near to a town to fight against it, offer it terms of peace. This is specifically for towns outside of Israel. When you draw near to them, offer them peace. If it accepts your terms of peace and surrenders to you, great, make all of those people serve you as forced labor. Brace yourselves, you buckled in, you ready? If it does not submit to you peacefully but makes war against you, besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. 
because you know that little boys eventually become warriors who will eventually kill your warriors, which means we need to get rid of them early. This is really no different than the text in Exodus when Pharaoh is wanting to do away with all of the young Israelite boys. And we look at that and we say, hmm, that is something dictators do. And here in this text, we have similar verbiage from the God of Israel, which causes people like Dawkins to step back and say, wait a minute. Continues, you may, however, take as your booty, that's a fun word, isn't it? You may, however, take as your booty the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the town, all of it spoiled. You may enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given to you. Thus, you shall treat all the towns that are very far from you, which are not towns of the nations here. If they don't want peace with you, kill the men, take the women, take the children, take the livestock, take, take all the stuff, and that's your spoil of war. And it gets one step one step worse, okay? Just, just stick with me. You still buckled in? But as for the towns of the people that the Lord your God has given you, of all the people in Canaan, you must not let anything that breathes remain alive. Annihilate them. The Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and something in me just wants to say, and the mosquito bites. But that's pretty, that's pretty... Uh, Terrible, one, and two, this is a pretty intense passage here to make light of what's going on by evoking the old mosquito bite anecdote. Am I right, Evan? Okay, let's just pretend I didn't say that. Annihilate them, just as the Lord your God has commanded so that they may not teach you to do all the abhorrent things that they do for their gods and you thus sin against the Lord your God. This is at the core of all of the, of the conquest. You can't allow the people to be in the land because if they're in the land, then you will be like them. You will do what they do. You will become idol worshipers. You will become people who don't follow Yahweh. This is where Dawkins might say that God is, is petty and, and jealous and doesn't want anyone to be exposed to these different ideas here. And in this text, he's saying, once you get into the land, get rid of them. Everything that breathes, get rid of them. This is a problem, right? Can you not see why this would cause some people to say, I don't want anything to do with God or this book that is so ancient that has no connection with, with what's going on here, and I'm just gonna walk away. It makes sense for Dawkins to say these things about the character of God, though I want you to stick with me here for a moment because we're all in this room because there's some pull in us towards the divine. Right? There's some pull in us towards, towards Jesus and towards faith. And there's some pull, perhaps, where we might hear stuff like this and we wanna, we wanna wrestle with it for a bit and not just walk away, but we wanna deal with what is going on in this passage. But before we get there, we have to admit, this is not a good start. Because as 21st century Western readers, this does not jive with how peaceful we want to be. Although... On a day like today, or on a weekend like this weekend, how peaceful are we? How, how dissimilar, like my whole talk is basically ancient people, ancient stuff, they're crazy, we're not, we're enlightened. But here we are, gathered in the midst of national tragedy, which according to some numbers, is the 250th mass shooting this year? And we can quibble with how, how those numbers are calculated, and I think that there's, we have a right to do that, but this is not foreign to us. For whatever reason, we too are, are a violent people. And we'll get to, to how, this, how this connects and, and where we're gonna go. But for now, understand that Jericho is the parade example of this violence in the Old Testament that people struggle with. It's not just kids in a cardboard box holding ropes, letting them go, and then me joking saying, it's genocide, everybody dies. Because everybody dies. And we have to wrestle with that and figure out what we're gonna do with that. 
So Jericho is this parade example, and some of the texts there, they're difficult, and you may have lost this, uh, but the author says, they put under the ban everything that was in the town. This is part of their spiritual act of worship to rip off Paul and how they're going about this holy war, this harem warfare. They're putting all these people from man to woman, lad to elder, ox, sheep, and donkey by the edge of the sword. They're ending them. The only people who make it out are Rahab the prostitute and whoever she gathers in her room in the wall while the rest of it is, is caving in. And beyond that, the town, they burned in fire and everything in it. This is an extremely violent picture of a programmatic uh, effort in war that Israel is conducting as their first act going into the promised land. So what do we do with this? I would say that usually what we have done is we've tried to justify it. And some of our justifications are, are better than others. The first thing that we usually say is something to the effect of like, who are we to question God? God's ways are higher than, than our ways. And it's not our job to, to read this story and say, whoa, God, you can't do that. So we just sort of let it go and wrapped up into this is our, our approach to the Bible itself. Like when you read these words on the page, you just kind of accept them for what they are and then you walk away and, and say, well, I guess that's how God did stuff back then. And it doesn't really sit well with me, but who, who am I? Who am I to say anything? Another way that we justify this is by bringing Jesus into the mix. Remember Jesus, he's, he's the meek and mild Jesus. Right? Although he's, he's got a mean streak to him as well. He shows up in the, in the temple courts and he's chucking tables saying, you have made my father's house a den of thieves. Jesus is not just meek and mild passive Jesus. He might be pacifist Jesus, but he's not passive Jesus. He's got stuff to say. He's turning over tables. He's calling people to account. He's saying to the religious leaders, you guys, you're, you're, you're whitewashed tombs. You don't get it. You're tithing your mint and your spices, but you, you've got... You've got no connection with God. You miss everything. Like he can call uh, sin, sin, if you wanna use those categories. But here, uh, people would say like, well, Jesus, meek and mild Jesus, he cares. And he, he tells us to turn the other cheek. And you know, he doesn't want us to, you know, blessed are the peacemakers, like the greatest hits of Jesus. But also, Jesus will throw you into hell if, if you need to go, right? And we, we use these, these terms where, where we say like, Jesus talked about hell a lot. He talked about money a lot. He talked about hell a lot. And for some reason, that makes us feel okay that what God is doing in the Old Testament makes sense because Jesus is also one who is able to throw people into hell. Although I would argue with you for a moment, just follow me for a moment. We didn't need to go here, but I'm gonna go here because you can't really lead with hell and then not say anything about it. When Jesus talks about the kingdom, he uses parables and he uses metaphors and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a net, it's like a bush, it's like a mustard seed, it's like a lost coin. He has all these images. When he's talking about hell, what he's usually using, he's not using the word Hades, he's talking about Gehenna. It's the Valley of Hinnom, it's, it's that thing over there. When he's teaching, and some would even say when he's talking about whitewashed tombs, over his shoulder is a whole hill of tombs that are white, where Jesus is like saying, it's like that. Same thing here, hell is like that. It's the smoldering fire pit where people would take their trash and where people would sacrifice their kids. It's that thing. Being absent from God is similar to that. He's using this metaphor not to evoke eternal conscious torment like Dante's Inferno. He's saying, when you want to be removed from God, it's like that thing over there. Why would you want that? It's less of a threat and more, check me on this, it's less of a threat and more of a teaching tool. Yeah. Let's, let's circle back to that. Thanks, Scott, for the, the help there, but let's, let's circle back to that. Other people say warfare in the ancient world, it was inevitable. Anytime you're walking around, you just might have to lop somebody's head off. You never know who's gonna pop out of a bush and you might just have to do away with them. To some degree, yeah, not the bit about the bush, uh, but it's an ancient culture and it's different than our own. You could even say warfare in the modern world is inevitable, the way that we're going about it, the way that we insert ourselves into the diplomacy of the entire globe. War is, 
It's inevitable because when people are in power and power corrupts people, then people are going to do ridiculous things and we have to figure out if we are the ones to go in and to stop those people from doing those things. But still, warfare in the ancient world, it was different. And people then say, so what God's doing back here is, is not that big of a deal. And then my personal favorite that I've heard on a pretty normal basis, I did teach high school for a while, so let's not go too far into that. Oh, well, if God was killing the Canaanites, they must have deserved it. Hello, pot, I'm Kettle. Right? Like, we forgot, like, the grace that is bestowed upon us, and we say, they, they, were, they were pretty bad. I, yeah, I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? Everybody that breathes, annihilate them. That makes sense. I'm good with that, I guess. But I'm pro-life, so, you know, let's just hold those two things in, in tension, you know? Sorry, if the line was here, did I... Did I <laughs> Did I come over here and hang out a bit? I'm not sure, but it's, I, think it, I, I think it works, you know? Uh, the Canaanites deserved it. That's not a, a great way of going about it. So that's what we do. We try to justify this, but what should we do? Here's the kicker. If you spend any amount of time with me, you know where I'm going. You know what I'm going to say with regard to how we should read the Bible, okay? Our dear friend Pete N. says, reading the Bible responsibly and respectfully means learning what it means for ancient Israelites to talk about God the way they did and not pushing alien expectations onto texts written long ago and far away. <laughs> Can I tell you what an alien expectation is? 21st century American ideologies for us to import that back onto an ancient text is nothing short of arrogant and silly. For us to think that we can crack open our Bible and read the words on the page and then just walk away saying like, yeah, I think that squares with my understanding of, you know, 10th century BC uh, Israelite warfare. You don't know jack about 10th century BC Israelite warfare. You know what I mean? Like we have no concept of what's going on, but we have all sorts of ideas when we read the Bible that we're not getting into the text to see what it means for the ancient Israelites in that moment. As our dear friend John Walton says in a bunch of books, he says, the Bible was written for us, but not to us, which means we got to get our hands dirty. We can't just crack it open and read these stories and say, that sounds about right. I guess if God wanted to kill everybody, he's allowed to do that. Moving on, Joshua chapter 7, there's more to the story. I don't know if you guys are with me in this. Are you here with me? Now, I want to pause for a moment, and I want to say that many of you do faithfully and devotedly Crack open your Bibles every day and you read it. I want to at least allow you this space and acknowledgement that the Holy Spirit will meet you there. You will learn and you will grow. But don't be fooled into thinking that we can understand a culture that is so far removed from ours that might help us to understand what's going on in these really problematic texts. This is the problem with Richard Dawkins. He's reading the words on the page and saying, God is a megalomaniacal, petulant bully. Well, Richard, let's get under the surface a little bit and first see what's going on in that cultural context to see if what you're saying has any sort of credence whatsoever. So here's the first thing. Israel is, in fact, an ancient tribal culture. They are not like us. From how they live to the ideologies they have, this is important, to the way they record history. When we read history, we think that we're just gonna get some objective reporting on what happens. Have any of you read the news recently? Where do you read your news? I'll answer for you, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC. Do these news sources have agendas? Are they objective, like removed uh, retellings of, of, of history? No, thank you, Marnie. No, of course not. They are agenda-driven to the max, and they are pushing a certain narrative across. Even in our own context, we can't get objective 
historical reporting because people have these agendas that they're trying to push. It's really no different for an ancient tribal culture in the way that they're retelling these stories, okay? I know, I'm getting behind. Got a lot of stuff to do. Israel's neighbors were also ancient tribal cultures. And the way they're all telling these stories, it looks very similar. So travel with me, Evan, if you would, back to the Moabite region in the 9th century BC and let us meet King Mesha. Are you excited? Maybe not as excited as I am. I tell you, I really transform into a different person if I just have half of a latte. <laughs> I mean, all day, I'm pretty subdued. As soon as I get some coffee, it's like... Who is this guy? Okay, the Mesha inscription or the Moabite stone says, I am Mesha, son of Chemosh, king of Moab, the Dibonite. Chemosh is like the patron deity, okay? Let this frame the entire thing. You could almost substitute Mesha and an Israelite king and Chemosh and Yahweh. These are how these two things are going together. My father ruled over Moab 30 years and I ruled after my father and I built this high place for Chemosh in the citadel. This could be, this could be taken straight from the book of Kings. People are always talking about building the high places for God, a high place of victory because he made me, Chemosh made me more victorious than all of the kings and because he caused me to dominate my enemies. Omri, this is a real king, you can read about him, I believe in 2 Kings, was king of Israel and for many days he subjugated Moab. Catch this, why did Omri subjugate Moab? Because Chemosh, the God, was angry with his land. Catch that? The things that happen are dependent upon the divine in the midst of, of, of that history. So if Chemosh is angry, then the people are going to suffer. But if Chemosh is present, then the people are going to be victorious. His son, Omri's son, replaced him, and he too said, I will subjugate Moab. In his days, he said that, but I dominated him. I, Mesha, dominated him and his house, and Israel was completely destroyed forever because Chemosh was with me. It sounds very familiar, right? This is how uh, Israel tells stories. It gets even, even closer. So I rebuilt Baal Meon, and I made the reservoir in it, and I built Kiryatan. The Gadites had lived in the land of Atarot from of old, and the king of Israel built Atarot for them. But I fought against the city, and I seized it, and I slew all of the people so that the city belonged to Chemosh and Moab. I took it, and I slew all of them, 7,000 men and boys and women and girls and wombs, because I dedicated it to the ban for Ashtar Chemosh. Same terms used in Joshua chapter 6. This is how warfare happens in the ancient world. You have divine involvement. You win if your God is with you, and you lose if your God is not with you. It's total destruction. Whenever you go into a town and whenever you retell that story, you don't say, well, we did pretty good. You know, three for five. I destroyed everything. Nothing that breathed moved ever again because I and Chemosh destroyed it. Like these are the ways that you tell these stories. You dedicate them to the ban because your job is holy and sacred and sanctified. That's what a warrior is. And everything that you kill is on the altar of Chemosh. In other words, this is how ancient people told stories of conquest, and Israel is no different. Here's the kicker, Evan. I don't know why I'm picking on you tonight. <laughs> it's all hyperbolic. You don't tell three for five stories. Complete destruction, complete decimation, everything to the ban. This is holy war that's taking place. You, you play it up because that's how people tell history back in the day. This is how, how they do this in the context of, of, of their, their moment in time. And we get that from the Bible. So in Joshua, it's like we destroyed everything that breathed. And then you turn a couple pages to the right and you get into Judges. And it says, and as they go into the land, there were still Canaanites there. We killed everybody that moved and dedicated them to the ban. But, you know, nah, I mean, not everybody. You know, I was like, you know, a good number of people. I mean, who, can, who really has time to get everybody? Some of them are quick, you know, and they're just, they were going, and I don't know, a good number. 
right? So when you push people on this, it's hyperbolic, and this is how you tell stories in the ancient world. Now, there's one more thing that I wanna talk about, and I'm gonna have fun talking about this. I, I see some yawns, and I see people like, hurry it up, dude, we got places to be. Namely, at Hoppers to celebrate Amanda Hill being a doctor, and we got drinks to be had, okay? Like, we'll get there, calm down. What do you know about archeology? span Does it all come from Indiana Jones? and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you have this idea that archeologists like swing around empty tombs and like they find things and they have to roll, like they have to run out of the way of rolling stones, not Mick Jagger. That would be pretty easy at this point, I think. But like you, you, you have this stuff that's happening here. You find these great things. Man, calm down. Archeology span is pretty boring. It's old people like sweeping dirt around it's not Indiana Jones, it's guys like this. William Foxwell Albright, in the middle of the 20th century, begins this movement towards biblical archeology span and attempting to prove the Bible by finding old stuff in the dirt. And he's like out there and he's sweeping around, and he's like, yeah, this is good. We can, we can prove the entire Bible happened if we just find the right stuff and date it at the right stuff. And this is John Garstang here. I believe that's how you pronounce his name. I'm not entirely sure, but this is Jericho. And he's dealing with Jericho in the 1930s. And when he first did his excavation, they found walls and they found burn levels and they found mass carnage and they found pottery. See, that's really what archeologists are all about, like finding little pottery shards and saying like, oh, this one's blue and it has a print on it. This must be the 14th century. You can't make a movie about that, you know? You just can't. But John Garstang, he, he dates all this stuff in Jericho and says the Bible is justified in the stories that it's telling. And then comes along Kathleen Kenyon in the 1950s. This is riveting, isn't it? Look at this though. She's got a trowel. You know she means business. That's an archeologist right there with a trowel. Is this good? Take, take the picture, a little bit higher. This, she goes back into the 50s and is going through John Garstang's findings of Jericho and she makes some controversial moves and says, you know, Garstang made some bad calls. Jericho, according to Kenyon, was minimally inhabited when Joshua would have been attempting to occupy the land. That one stings, right? Because the picture in Joshua 6, is it minimally inhabited? No, even though we hear nothing about the people, really. It's just like the walls fall down, and they're blowing horns, and like nobody's doing anything. There's no archers, like nothing. We don't know anything about the people, but we have this story, and she says, you know what, based on my understanding of the stuff here that's on the ground, there probably wasn't anybody there, and wait for it. <laughs> Kenyon says that the walls in Jericho, they don't date right to when Joshua was there. They're from way before. Something happened a long time before anybody from Israel would have showed up, and she's like, Garsting, I, <laughs> I don't think so. And what's happened now is most of scholarship has accepted her findings with some uh, updates, but people like Miller and Hayes say most of the sites that are identified with the cities that the biblical account does associate with the conquest, they've produced little or no archeological indication of even having been occupied during the time of Joshua, much less having been destroyed by him. All of the towns that the book of Joshua says that they've destroyed, when people have swept around and they've done their archeology span thing, which admittedly, you're just kind of, you're making sense of facts on the ground. They, they come back and, and the mainline uh, decisions are, I don't, mm -mm. <laughs> At this point, like, perhaps you, like the Nazis, when you look into the ark, your face begins to start melting. And perhaps some of this stuff, as you're sitting there like, I'm not ready for this and your face just starts to go a little bit. I hope you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, because if you haven't, then this just won't, won't land at all. Kayla, come on, come on. 
And just so you know that I'm not making this up, Israel Finkelstein says, the patriarchal uh, stories, the exodus, and the conquest narratives which describe the formative history of the people of Israel cannot be read as straightforward historical accounts. No, this is the book, The Quest for the Historical Israel. His uh, more conservative counterpart in the same book, they like go uh, issue for issue. Crazy liberal conservative. The conservative, Amahai Matsar, says archaeology negates the biblical Israelite conquest as an historical event, at least as it's portrayed in scripture. Tremper Longman, who's even more conservative than that, says when it comes to Jericho and indeed all of Joshua 1 through 11, we should recognize the obvious hyperbole used in the accounts of these battles. They're theological stories that are meant to portray something true about God and about the land, but when we go in and we just read the words off the page, we're missing what is really happening. And then our dear old friend Pete Enns, who just wants to stick a dagger in your chest area, I'm not sure. He says, biblical archaeologists are about as certain as you can be about these things that the conquest of Canaan, as the Bible describes, did not happen. No mass invasion from the outside by an Israelite army and no extermination of Canaanites as God commanded. And here, like that, the melting has just, it continues. <laughs> I censored that just because I didn't know what, what age group we'd have in the room. It, I could go erase that, I think, and just show you the full glory of, of the face. But you, don't, you might not know what to do with all of this information, because now I'm saying that the way these stories are told, they fit within their historical context. There's hyperbole involved. There's no archaeological evidence to really push us one way or the other. And now we're left with these stories that may not be true, which, which ultimately might not be a terrible thing. Because in these stories, we have a God who seems to be uh, moving his people towards mass genocide. Again, we have to, to stay right here. The Bible was written for us, but not to us. So what's the point of these stories in the text? Now, I've got two things that we need to lay out, and then we'll be done, okay? For the ancient readers of this story, what they would have taken away is God has given us this land. However, they're telling this story However, they're uh, imagining this, this procession of, of the Israelites around Jericho. The point, the takeaway is God is for us and God has given us this land and therefore we need to obey God and we need to trust God. This was the point of these stories here. And I think that we could, we could maybe take away some of these things in, in the same way that God is revealing himself in a specific moment in time to, to a people in a way that they understand God continues to do that for us here and now. And it is not appropriate for us to look back and see, ah, the conquest. We should be conquesting people because America is God's land. That is not the takeaway. However... Many of us have had that takeaway, and what it has led to is not only mass genocide of indigenous people, but it's also led us to, to this entitlement that we are God's people in a way that is more special than any other place in the globe I don't think there's any biblical warrant for us to be there. We can be excited that we live in America. We can be excited that we're free. We can be thankful for the people that have sacrificed their lives for us. But to believe that God is blessing this place above and beyond every other place is not correct. Now, what do we do with the Bible in light of this? Because as you guys are sitting here, you might be looking at your text now and thinking like, I don't know what to do with this because what Josh is saying is these stories are hyperbolic. They might not fit in history and we have to figure out what to do with them. But I think that we're ready for this. If you've spent any amount of time with us, I'm sorry for my visitors here. If you've spent any amount of time with us, this hopefully should land with you. God speaks to us in a way that makes sense in our cultural context. And we see how this works in the Bible. At specific moments, God is allowing his people to tell stories and to, and to engage in culture in a way that makes sense to them. And it's no different for us here. And now we would not expect God to reveal himself to us in a way that made sense way back in Joshua's day. But instead, God is speaking to us in a way that we can understand here and now. And the primary example that we have of this is the incarnation. When Jesus, as a first century Jew, shows up to live and to do ministry and to heal and to die. 
Jesus, who is the, the very imprint of God in human form, living within a, a specific moment in time, and God is also engaging with us in our specific moment in time and calling us to be people of justice, to be people of peace, to be people who care about the, the way that the world is taking some of these texts and turning them in a way that is not pro-life, but anti-life. God cares about that, and he's wanting to empower us to be his people. Last thing, what does any of this have to do with Jesus? And I understand that the Bible stuff, it might, not, it might be a, a process. We might have to get coffee a few times for us to, to reach some uh, place of healthiness there, and I would encourage you guys to, to reach out. There's a story in, in the Gospel of Mark where a Syrophoenician woman shows up and she's attempting to get Jesus to heal her child. And it says in Mark chapter seven, it says that Jesus is leaving that place and he goes to the vicinity of Tyre. He enters into a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. And then this woman shows up. She was a Greek. She was born in Syria, uh, Syrian Phoenicia and she begged Jesus to drive out a demon out of her daughter. And this is that text where Jesus says, first, let the children eat all they want for it's not right to take the children's food and to give it to the dogs. You remember that? I talk about this text a lot. And then she comes back and says, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And Jesus says, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. We have this interchange with a mom who's advocating for her child saying, Jesus, I'm not gonna leave you until you give me what it is that I need. I'm advocating for my child and you need to show up. And Jesus has this weird response like, first, I gotta feed the kids and it's not appropriate to take the food and to give it to the dogs. Jesus, meek and mild Jesus. That's a tough one. But she fights. She says, I'm not leaving because even people like me need the crumbs. Help my kid. In the book of Matthew, the same story is told. But in Matthew's version, she's not Syrian Phoenician. She's Canaanite. This is the only mention of Canaanites in, in the New Testament. And Jesus is interacting with this woman. And she's advocating for her child in, in, in roughly the same way in Matthew chapter 15. But what the author wants you to see is the people from way back when who were completely annihilated, or not, the people who were removed from their homes, because this is Israel's land. Now in Matthew's gospel, this is a Canaanite woman who receives grace, who is included in the family of God. Whatever we do with these really difficult Old Testament texts, whatever we do with the violent depictions of God in the Old Testament, I hope what we can take away is this little faint hint in the New Testament that the Canaanites are brought into the family much like we have been. And as followers of Jesus, it's our job to find the Canaanites, to advocate for them, and to bring them into the family because this is what Jesus wants to do. These are the people that need to be brought in to this home. I know that there's a lot of stuff that's tough in here, but I hope that the takeaway can be, we can trust God and we can trust that he is using us to further this narrative, to bring in the people on the outskirts and the margins and to allow them to see Jesus. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of TRP's weekly podcast. If you live in or near Salisbury, Maryland, come join us for one of our Sunday services. We'd love to meet you. If you're interested, you can get more info on our website, restoresby.org, or on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash restoresby. If you're a regular listener, thanks for coming back. If you've benefited from what we do and would like to support us, you can share all your kind words and good vibes with the world by rating us on iTunes. Or if you're so inclined, you can give financially at give.restoresby.org. We'll see you next week.